Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. A big decision this year, the big event, has been a Supreme Court decision in a case that's come to be known as the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, Jack Phillips, a baker, refusing to bake a cake. And our guest today to talk about what the Supreme Court held, my friend and colleague, attorney Nicholas Miller, who is on the faculty at Andrews University and also Director of Public Affairs and Religious Liberty for the Lake Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, Nick. Always good to be with you, Alan. So the Supreme Court kind of punted, didn't it? It didn't really decide the issue in question. Well, that's what many people are saying about it, and certainly the media is spinning it strongly that way. Uh, but I believe that there is at least a significant implicit ruling on this that provides a greater protection to religious freedom than we certainly had before this case. Well, you're going to have to explain this to me, because from what I can tell, all the court really did was double down on the principle of government neutrality towards religion, which has been the... Uh, the law since 1990 with the peyote case and subsequently. So, uh, well, first of all, let's just lay out for our listeners what exactly the court did do and then how you see this as somehow an improvement. Right. So we should give the bigger picture on this, um, that this came from the state of Florida under human rights guidelines there. Colorado, you mean. Colorado, you're in Florida. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have I have Florida on my mind. Of course, I meant Colorado. And, Too much sunshine. You're at the beach. Too much sunshine. <laughs> uh, so Colorado Human Rights Commission was implementing what would be a neutral statute on its face. And the statute said that there should be, could be no discrimination based on a variety of features, including sexual orientation or identity. And there's no argument that that was neutral on its face towards religion. And further, there's no argument that um, there's evidence that somehow the legislatures who passed it were acting with anti-religious animus. But what there is in the record is that the commission itself, when applying these rules, did so in a way and through their comments um, in the hearing against the Christian baker who would not bake a, a same-sex wedding cake, that these comments showed a certain amount of animus and discriminatory bias towards Christians and their point of view. So, and not only were there these comments in existence, but also the commissioners had ruled against a Christian who had tried to get cakes baked by gay bakers that um, endorsed and promoted heterosexual marriage. And so there was in the record these two evidences of bias, but they weren't by the original law 
makers or the law itself. Rather, they were by the judges in the case, if you will. And so the Supreme Court, in reviewing all this, per the uh, opinion of, uh, of Justice Kennedy, who now is on the verge of retiring, um, said that because there was evident animus in the judicial process in applying this law, that this case could not stand. And interestingly enough, and, and this is very important, I think, for this decision and for in the manner in which it protects religious freedom, they didn't remand it for a decision consistent with, uh, you know, the standards we set out here, they reversed it. And in doing that, they made it clear that the, you know, the lower court could not fix its problem just by simply changing its language or speaking more kindly to religion. And I think this is where most of the media commentary gets things wrong. The media seems to think that well, as long as the lower court judges had been nice and polite and kind towards the religious people and religion in generally, they could have ruled any way they wanted to. You know, as long as you're kind and polite to religion, you can always rule against it. Um, but if that were the case, I believe that the Supreme Court should have remanded with instructions to revisit the issue, removing any religious bias. But they didn't do that. And well, I think it's sending take- a message... Let me just finish the thought. It's sending a message that you not only have to treat religion with an appearance of fairness, but you have to take its underlying claims seriously in your actual judicial balancing. Okay, so I guess I disagree. Um, I think the reversal reflects the courts just uh, being dubious that the Colorado Commission that was previously biased could somehow cure its bias. They were biased, and so, you know, they're ending the case, which I think was perfectly appropriate. But, you know, as a practical matter, make two observations. First of all, the court did not decide whether, in fact, Jack Phillips' uh, religious objections to providing a cake for a same-sex couple should prevail in the future, in future cases. So, They didn't decide the underlying issue as between the conflict between religious conscience and gay rights, you know, who wins. They didn't decide that. But more importantly, perhaps for Jack Phillips anyway, I understand that he had, as a result of all of this, he'd had to close down the wedding cake portion of his bakery business. He'd had to lay off employees. And frankly, I don't see him being in a position where he can say, oh, okay, I can start baking wedding cakes again and hiring more staff, you know, because I have a right to decline, you know, certain kinds of business. I think that the result of the Colorado decision effectively still stands when it comes to closing down Jack Phillips' wedding business. Well, I, I mean, if that's true, then the Supreme Court did nothing here. But Supreme Court decisions should be read in a way that makes them meaningful. And I think that the decision does signal that, you know, the decision has precedential value. And something our common law system embodies is the fact that um, precedents have meaning that go beyond the mere expression of the words in the decision. Um, 
you are applying principles, you're looking at the facts, what the judges say about the case is important indeed, but so is the result and the factual pattern. And the Supreme Court has sent at least a message that while they haven't decided all future cases, and I agree with you on that, and in fact, before we before we uh, started the recording here, I told you about a call I just received in my state where one of our church members who's a photographer has received requests by three different lesbian couples to come and uh, take pictures for them in either engagement or marriage or romantic settings of some kind. And um, I'm having to decide what counsel to give. And and you're honestly correct in that it's not entirely clear how one evades the threat or reality of a lawsuit given the Supreme Court's decision. Um, and yet, I believe the Supreme Court's decision sends a message to the courts that whenever there's this conflict, you at least have to take religious freedom seriously. It won't always prevail, but neither will LGBT rights. And we now have at least a chip in the scale that uh, we didn't have before this decision came down. So let me tell you again why I disagree. And you and I have been friends an awfully long time. But, uh, you know, in the 1990 decision... We're we're not disagreeing on the underlying values or what should happen. No, 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 no. We're disagreeing on how we think that this case is going to be applied in the future. And and what it means. Correct. Correct. Uh, and, you know, for the record, uh, you know, Nick, my esteemed guest, made law review at Columbia, and I did not make law review at North Carolina. So, you know, uh, all things being equal, you should probably trust his view over mine. But having <laughs> having said that, uh, I'm still going to, you know, uh, sure, yeah. express my opinion here, which is that, you know, Justice Scalia, going back to 1990, uh, imposed a rule of neutrality that if a statute, if a rule, if a regulation is not facially discriminatory towards religion, is just neutral towards religion, then do not really weigh the religious freedom interest as against that statute when it somehow is seen to restrict religious freedom. The statute prevails as long as itself was religiously neutral. Correct. Here, the departure from neutrality, as you pointed out, was not the statute itself, but it was the application of that statute. So there was what, in the legal jargon, uh, has come to be known as an individualized assessment. And individualized assessments that depart from neutrality have always been subject to a higher kind of balancing of interests. Um, At the best, something that we call strict scrutiny where the religious liberty interest gets treated very, very seriously, and the burden of proof is on the government to to justify infringing it. I don't see how this ruling changes that analysis at all, which is why, to me, it doubles down on the whole framework of basic neutrality and that you only get any kind of serious consideration for religious liberty interests if you have some kind of individualized assessment or a departure from neutrality that you know starts to look like discrimination against religion. 
Well, I mean, that's a clever argument because you're right that in the, when you have an individualized a system of individualized assessments that um, and that can be used to create exemptions of one kind or another, then you need to be willing to make exemptions for religion. But that's that's a different sort of administrative political assessment that's it's that hasn't typically been applied to the judicial system. And most of the time in courts, if a judge makes um, a correct ruling, but for a wrong reason, then the appeals court can make the correct ruling and just state the right reason. I mean, that's that's pretty much black letter law just because the judge gets the reasoning wrong. But the the, the legal ruling right, um, the appeals court has every reason to uphold the ruling based on the correct decision, even if the reasoning is wrong. So I think this is new. This is new in saying that a court's reasoning um, will in fact invalidate what could otherwise be a perfectly correct legal ruling. And the Supreme Court was unwilling to make an independent assessment about the correctness of the legal ruling, saying it was made impermissible by the prejudice or bias of the court. And I think that's new. You know, under Smith, you said, yeah, the law has to be neutral, and under Lukumi, you said, and the legislator's motives must have had to been neutral. But I've, I haven't seen this extended to uh, the reasoning of courts. But Well, that's a very interesting point you raise, Nick, and uh, we'll certainly see where this goes. Um, but I think, I think you're right that this is new, and of course it remains to be seen what happens with photographers and others whose uh, you know, free speech interests are, and religious freedom interests are even stronger than than the baker. We are well, out of time. This <laughs> has been a great discussion. I'm sure we'll have more. Our guest today, Attorney Nicholas Miller, we've been talking about the Supreme Court masterpiece cake shop decision. Don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. This has been Freedom Spring. I'm your host, Alan Rhinock. Until next week, let freedom ring.